listening to the Needle Mythology podcast with myself, Pete Pavides, brought to you in proud association with Flare Audio, inventors of the game-changing Jet and Flare Pro wireless earphones. This is an hour or so that we set aside to celebrate brilliant records and the people who make them and to learn a little bit about the stories behind them. So far in this series, we've been tending to focus on records that were made a while ago and whose reputation has only grown in the interim. That wasn't necessarily the intention to do that every time. It's just as important to shine a light on the classic albums being made right now and holding them up alongside those titles that have had some time to soak into our lives. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome an artist who, as I speak, is preparing to release one of the defining albums of 2019. Not just because it's a brilliant piece of work in its own right, but because it also speaks something of the age in which it was made. Its creator grew up in Ahmedabad and Chennai in India, where from the age of 10 he studied tabla, and alongside the indigenous Indian music that surrounded him, he developed a love of jazz, which he continued to nurture when he moved to London and formed the Upaj Collective, with whom he released last year's stunning live album, My East Is Your West. That was a record that created something utterly unrepeatable on the basis of one 45-minute rehearsal featuring amongst its track listing interpretations by pieces of Faro Sanders and Alice Coltrane. Um, prior to that, on his debut studio album, Day to Day, he was exploring the connections between Sufi Muslims, the African Bantu and the aforesaid Cosmic Jazz Expeditionaries. And while more of the same would have been no bad thing, his new album, More Arriving, sees him explore thrilling new territory, drawing upon the nascent rap scenes of Mumbai and New Delhi, where he spent much of 2016. His name is Sarathi Korwa, and I'm so glad he's here with me today. Hi, Sarathi, how are you? Hi, Pete, I'm, I'm really well. I just want to start with the present. This is just such a great record, and um, I'm an instant fan. But let's start with the present, because let's start with the first track I heard by you. There's a taster track from the album, which is called Mumbai and features MC Mawali. People who don't know, what are we listening to when we listen to such an exciting piece of music as that one? Mumbai is actually an interesting track because it's uh, it speaks to me and to MC Mawali, whose whose real name is Aklesh, to the duality of the city of Bombay or Mumbai. Uh, what we're talking about is Bombay being the old colonial British name for the city, and Mumbai being the Indian quote unquote Indian name of the city, yeah. but primarily being driven by a very right wing fundamentalist nationalist kind of agenda. 
so here we are or for anybody who lives in uh, the city having to kind of battle between these two opposing forces of ideologies mm. one kind of colonial one nationalist and having to kind of subscribe to either one of them which doesn't really make much sense mm. for a lot of people so it's about finding a middle path or also about realizing that the city is far more than what the name might suggest weird because there are sort of echoes of what's happening in Britain you know with the two leading political parties at the moment absolutely and i think there's always that battle against nostalgia and the greatness of britain but then the also the battle is against who's opposing that battle it may may be that the people opposing that battle aren't people that you subscribe to either so then where do you stand in this debate where both mainstream voices aren't ones that you subscribe to and then we kind of dug further into that idea of the duality of the city and the fact that you have asia's second largest slum in dharawi in the middle of the city of bombay or mumbai and that's where a lot of this new indian hip hop is coming from is from places like dharawi but then you also have people consuming this music in posh clubs in south bombay or in the suburbs you know so that duality exists and it's something that anybody who has anything to do with bombay or mumbai has to navigate that's amazing because it's constantly i'm just thinking of the vanguard of kind of exciting sort of grime music that's that's kind of been you know you hear in london especially uh, but all over britain now really over the last decade which has really edged dramatically into the mainstream over the last few years and then again in quite posh parts of london you know you will often hear public school kids using the vernacular sure. of of those records so it's interesting to hear you say that that duality or an equivalent of that duality uh, exists in mumbai as well yeah absolutely and i think that's always going to be something that every music scene or regardless of what uh, it doesn't have to be music but like if there's a scene that's doing well and it's come from the uh, diy underground space it's bound to get appropriated by the mainstream at yeah. some level once they realize that there's something to sell there's something to project on to other people when there's a lot of young people listening to something that's yeah. obviously suddenly really uh, a lucrative space to exploit and it's interesting always to see how these spaces or these scenes navigate that uh, situation you know mm-hmm. and i think like in 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 mumbai or in india largely it's been about a few people kind of going into that space or stepping over and going into bollywood for example but then there's also a large amount of people who are still in the independent music scene who are still making their own records living by their own kind of rules it's it's an exciting time and so the your point of intersection with this seems to be um so you spent a lot of 2016 in india sort of hooking up with a lot of the um the artists that appear often fleetingly on this record just to put me in the picture you're you so you're you live in kilburn step me through the process first of all where do you hear some of these people how do you get in touch with them and what happens next so i first heard some rappers from mumbai in mid to late 2016 and as soon as i heard a couple of these guys i was really interested because they were rapping in their own languages um to samples of music that sounded very original and they seemed to be driving a 
this DIY scene from Dharavi, which is the slum I was talking about. And we're just kind of wearing their politics on their sleeves and being really proud about who they were. So it spoke to me as somebody who's been involved with and been following the independent music scene in India for a while, um, that this was a really kind of fresh burst of energy. And I just immediately wanted to go and spend some time with these people and kind of just understand what their motivations are and just make some music with them. So I hit them up on Facebook, yeah. as you do, and uh, spent the next two, two and a half years going back and forth between Bombay, Delhi, also a brief stint in Abu Dhabi, and just working with people who I really connected with after like really spending time researching, kind of seeing who, what is out there, who's playing, who's, you know, who, who are these MCs. And um, with a band in London, at first we kind of recorded a bunch of sketches mm. and then went over to India. I went over to India, um, recorded some of the vocals onto it, came back, recorded more music and then went back again. So a process of back and forth. And then finally what we have now is the, is the album. And um, who was the first person you hooked up with? Well, the first crew I hooked up with were the Slum Gods. And they took their name from the the film, the Danny Boyle film, uh, the Slum Dog Millionaire. And they called themselves the Slum Gods instead. Okay. And um, they said, you know, like, we're proud of where we're from. And there's no need for this kind of poverty porn idea. Is that how they see the film? Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people in India see the film that way. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's a very you know it's a problematic film in many ways, and I think uh, this is interesting anyway. Without going onto a tangent there, but like they have been working with local the youth community in Dharavi for a long time now, teaching young youths to to rap to within b-boy culture graffiti. So it's very much this kind of idea of Saturday school, Sunday school, where people go there instead of kind of just roaming the streets. Yeah. Um, so it serves this kind of educational purpose, hip hop. And um, so I went and spent some time with the two or three of the MCs there, and I recorded uh, Trap Poju, Vineet Nair, on the on the track City of Words. Yeah, uh, that was my first uh, encounter. We were talking about a city of words and uh, trap poju, um, which is like this beautiful, like very kind of slow reveal, kind of incredibly atmospheric piece of music. And for, ironically, for a track called City of Words, we don't actually hear any words for a while. This takes me to sort of a very sort of far away place in my mind, and I'd like to sort of correspond that to where it actually was. Yeah, made. Primarily, this song comes from a jam I had with the sax player, who's, by the way, Chris Williams on alto saxophone, just kind of steals the track for me. It's like such a beautiful take.
it was one of those takes where he played so beautifully and i wasn't really comfortable using the drums and keys that were on that take but in the end we just had to go with it because the sax was so good yeah so it was one of those was like bite the bullet and take one for the comment for the no one's going to notice that the no one's going to notice if i hadn't said it nobody would but just so that people also know that it is important to know that sometimes you might not have recorded your best playing but actually what matters most is the fact that the the sax oh, so one part of that track communicated so much to me that it was important to just keep it and the drums is you right the drums is me yeah because you also play i play tabla as well i was reading this book called exit west mm. uh, at the time and it's about this it's by mohsin hamid and it's about this kind of imaginary fictional town at the center of this migration crisis and it's about these imaginary doors that open up in different parts of the city and you're transported through them into a different part of the world mm. and it's about how the politics of those doors as well and you know there's this as then there's there's this mafia behind who run and control right. these doors it's just a surrealist kind of take on the migration crisis basically yeah. that's where this track came from and trap poju who's who's primarily a rapper i convinced him to kind of write a poem for this his poems in hindi and it's like sapno ka ek shehar banato which is make a city of words right. that's the first line he yeah. says and that's where the line comes that's where the title comes from so make a city of words find your own streets right shabdon ka ek shehar bana do khoj lo khud ki sadkon ko mausam mein kuch khas thand hai aaj dar aur shak ko jala do जाना हमें बहुत दूर रास्ते जल्द ही कटेंगे जिंदगी इसी शहर में चलना है साथ चलेंगे एंड इट्स अबाउट नेविगेटिंग अगेन अ न्यू अ न्यू लैंड बट टुगेदर विद समवन पॉसिबली योर पार्टनर योर लवर और बिलवेड एंड स्टेइंग टुगेदर थ्रू दिस कैन टू मल्टीवर्स टाइम्स It's a beautiful track anyway but that certainly enhances it. We were talking earlier on about notions of identity and you know first generation and second generation something that's been a preoccupation of yours for a while now I think. And how does it manifest itself on this particular record? I think it's uh, it would probably be unfair to say that it's a preoccupation because it's something that I've had to deal with. I haven't wanted to deal with it. Almost it's kind of something that I can't avoid dealing with. just by virtue of living in london you know i think a lot of the music is as political or as as outspoken as it is because actually i don't really have much of a choice in it uh, very early on i realized that this is the reality that i have and it's probably better to embrace it and speak about it rather than kind of shun it away yeah so yeah it all comes from being a first generation south asian immigrant in the uk and a lot of it comes from the stereotypes that one is faced with from promoters from venues from booking agents from you know record labels from anybody you know yeah. what people assume your music is going to look and sound like what people assume you look and sound like and it's just about breaking those ideas and notions of what people think south asian music looks and sounds like 
What do people think? <laughs> I think primarily, like what I've got a lot in the past is this lazy idea of primarily can propagated by the spiritual jazz, quote unquote, movement in a way from the 70s, 80s is this idea of, uh, you know, yogis under trees or like flying carpets or like elephants and like beautiful spiritual music. Yeah. Whereas if you listen to this album, it's a bunch of rappers from a slum and like, you know, it's not spiritual. It's it's angry and loud and raw and urban. And the reality is that both those sides of India exist. And like, I think what this record does is talk about what young voices in India and diaspora sound like in 2019, uh, as opposed to what our notions of what Indian music. Picking up on that point about uh, the kind of the slight cliche of Indian yeah. and spiritual jazz, and you know, yeah. we've all seen, even if we don't have them in our collection, we've all seen collectors amongst the scene exactly yeah. records with titles like Indo Jazz Fusion. Yeah, and you know, we, you know, someone from my relatively ignorant perspective doesn't really know how much research, no, sure. And I think that is why. I made the the last record, which My East is Your West. Well, that's the point I was going to come to because yeah. the, the, the moment you said that, I thought, hang on, there's a there's a version of Alice Coltrane's Journey in Sachi uh, Sachi Dananda. Yeah. kind of a playful intent there or? no I mean it's quite evident I think like these are all tunes that I love like don't get me wrong like I love Alice Coltrane love Don Cherry love Ferro Sanders Joe Henderson all the lot you know Abdullah Ibrahim all these people I think the problem I have with a lot of this music is that is the representation of Indian music within it you know for like you said like for people like you or say anybody else who is listening to uh, Alice Coltrane record and here's an out of tune sitar or a badly played Tanpura that might be your only access to Indian music. And then that's what you think Indian music sounds like. You know? yeah, yeah. So my problem is not that they've used it the way they have, but also that there isn't any other example of any other kind of playing, you know, yeah, anywhere yeah. else. So it's about, for me, that record was about kind of going in and sort of beefing up the Indian sections on these songs and kind of balancing them out so they're equal part jazz, equal part Indian classical. Because I think in 2019, if we're going to be talking, still talking about these songs, yeah. then they need to be thought of, thought of in a different way. Is I like the I'm idea saying. that you're going in and sort of repairing them almost. Well, I mean, like, it, again, repairing makes it sound like I don't I think they were wrong, which no, I, I kind I, of think, like, I know what you mean. I've got to be careful because, like, you know, I don't want to end up slagging off uh, no, people no, I love. No. But like, I, I do think there's a problem. Not a, It's a more systemic problem. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people thought of the East, quote-unquote, uh, as a repository of knowledge, you know. My parents are Greek and Greek Cypriot, and I think there's also a sort of question of what constitutes a reasonable expectation at a particular point in the timeline. So I remember when my parents, you know, were relatively new to this country and they would never see 
a Greek person depicted either in a drama or in a film or on television or in a soap opera. Mm. And, you know, in 1977, if they saw a really bad representation of, of a Greek person on telly, then they were just delighted anyway, because right. before there was nothing. Nothing, yeah. But in 2019, obviously, that's... <laughs> well, I think that's exactly right. I think in 2019, we can do a lot better than where we're at yeah. with a lot of stuff, you know. So I think that's where the, the motivation to that record and that gig basically uh, comes from. So that gig, for people who don't know, let's just sort of put it in context. So this album that came out in 2018, My East Is Your West, was a, uh, a sort of an, an improvised show, which this blows my mind. When you listen to it, if you haven't listened to it, again, you'll see what I mean. The notion that an album that just sounds so incredible had uh, just a 45-minute rehearsal. That was not out of choice, but it just ended up happening there because there was 10, 12 musicians on it and the only time we could get everybody in the same room was at Soundcheck, just before the gig. What was the venue? It was at St. James the Great, the church, and it's run by these promoters called Church of Sound. And if you haven't, aren't familiar with them, definitely, definitely go to one of their gigs. Yeah. They have a monthly night at this church in Clapton, and it's always such a beautiful, joyous experience. They've somehow cracked this idea of like intimate, warm audiences who are always there for the musicians, you know. And people go into those gigs knowing that they're going to have a great time. Let's talk about the opening track, The Street in Bombay. Mm. Was there a sort of German of an idea which pre-existed or do you just sort of play it that's how it came out and then you go back and give it a title no street and bombay they're all all the tracks on that album are covers of oh, right. of songs so what i didn't want to do was only play music from people like alice coltrane and people who borrowed from the east but also indian musicians who are jazz musicians street and bombay is by a person called amancio de silva who grew up in Bombay, but then moved to Ealing, of all places, in the 70s, and made some amazing music with people like Joe Harriet and John Mayer. Yeah. Um, and um, so Street in Bombay is one of his tunes, and I really wanted to play it because it was one of my favorite tunes. Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb Jet earphones. We also played some tracks by Ravi Shankar, uh, one track by Ravi Shankar, and um, we were going to play a track by Trilok Gurtu, uh, but we didn't have time. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Well, it's quite a long record. Well, it? this is it. We were told to stop playing because we played for about near enough three hours. By really? Then. And so I was like, okay, we need to stop. Yeah, okay. So you grew up 
firstly in Ahmedabad, which is a sort of it's it's a lot it's a very large city, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's in relative terms it's very very large. In Indian terms, it's sort of medium sized. <laughs> it's about seventh or eighth biggest city in India. Uh, it's in the western state of Gujarat. And up until what age were you there? I was ten when I moved to Chennai. We grew up on campus of the Indian Institute of Management. My dad was a professor there. Uh, my mom's an architect. Your father specialized in what? In sort of finance and but also marketing. Okay. Um, the Indian Institute of Management is one of the kind of sort of well, one of the kind of like the Harvards of of the India, like a very prestigious kind of institute. Okay. And it was a large, like forty-five acre big campus right in the middle of the city. Um, and so it was beautiful. Like I you know, grew up with like uh, in very kind of lush surroundings, lots of green green spaces, very safe. And what area of architecture did your mum specialise in? My mum basically uh, did lots of interiors, but she also did a lot of landscape design on gardens. So not a commercial architect? No, 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 no. no. So kind of private houses or like uh, play schools or anything that, you know, she would freelance basically. So that's a high achieving background. Yeah, I mean, my dad's a PhD in finance, mum's a master's in urban planning and architecture, no, and you know. No pressure then? No, well, I actually never felt it. Like, they never they never really asked me to, uh, unlike your kind of stereotypical Indian family, yeah, they never really asked me to, um, yeah, to choose. And I was, I was, until the age of 22, really, still not sure what I wanted to do. Um, and but you were playing tabla. I was from playing the age tabla. Of 10. Yeah, from the age of ten. So very lucky that I kind of kept it up through my teens. Because as most things, as most teenagers, you kind of dabble in a few things, but then kind of give up, which I did with other things. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, with the tabla, I kind of stuck at it for whatever reason. Realistically, it was just one of those things that I did. And when I was eighteen, I looked up and I could already play a bit. You know. So if you're 31 now, then this we're talking about you being sort of what, uh, so around about the turn of the century. Yeah. By the time I kind of was playing tabla at a good kind of level, it was 2005, 2004, 2005, let's say. So end of high school, basically. Right, okay. Um, yeah. Fear of missing out, fear of going out, fear of flying, fear of dying, imposter syndrome, spiders, pipes from Ghostwatch, dolls with buttons for eyes. We're all scared of something, but what are you scared of? Join me, Sarah Morgan, for The Fear, a podcast about the overlap between comedy and horror. The secret lemonade drinker adverts. Geese. That time on Biker Grove when Agma Parling got shot in the face with a paintball. In each episode, I interview funny, interesting people I like, people like Phil Jupiter, Alice Lowe, Richard Osman, Riley Silverman, and Danielle Ward, about their biggest fears in a judgment-free environment. It is spooktacular. The Fear. And remember, do have nightmares because they're an entirely appropriate response to the horrors of modern living. And uh, I read somewhere that around this time, you know, there was a sort of music shop that was playing jazz just sort of down the road. Or, is yeah, that's right. That's that right. too good to be true. Well, it wasn't playing jazz as much as like I was introduced to jazz by a professor in school who I really respected. And uh, he 
picked me out from a whole class of people to give a couple of CDs to. So I felt special, you know, more than anything else. And he gave me a Ahmed Jamal CD, gave me a, I think he gave me a Cannonball Adderley CD, a Kenny wow. Burrell CD. So at the time, it didn't really mean much to me, any of this music. What was but, his name? Uh, Muttu Anna. Okay. Beautiful guy. Sadly passed away. Yeah, he gave me these things and it just made me feel good, you know, more than anything else. It meant that I wanted to check it out. It meant that he saw something in me that he didn't see in other kids, which made me feel good. And um, I also grew up with a bunch of my friends in school have like immaculate taste in music. I got to say like What were your <laughs> friends listening to? We were listening to like rock and roll from the 60s and like I was introduced by my first girlfriend introduced me to Janis Joplin when I was 12, 13. And like I was listening to Janis Joplin when I was 13 in Chennai, like come on. No, what else? Yeah, like Dylan and the Beatles and the Doors and Hendrix and you know like... So this feels like the equivalent of like the coolest grammar school gang yeah. in the world. Definitely, so. definitely, I think it was. Um, a lot of the drummers actually, interestingly when I think about now, that I really liked at the time, people like Mitch Mitchell, John Densmore from The Doors, all came from a jazz background. Yeah. Um, even Ginger Baker, you know, with and Cream. Those jazz drum, you know, there's something so great about a rock band with a jazz drum. Oh, it's drummer. the best, man. Isn't it's it? It's the best. Isn't it? Really tight when you need to, but like this this, this kind of idea of improvisation. Being... You know, Pentangle. Yeah. So interesting story with Pentangle. Bert Jansh, I now have his studio in Kilburn. Oh, really? Yeah. So basically, five years ago, a friend of mine moved into his flat after he passed away, sadly. And he was renting this space where he had the studio at the back of the garden and it turned out it was Burchanch's studio. I know, I've been to that house. Yeah, yeah, have you? It's a massive garden. Yeah, yeah, so we're the, we're the studio at the back. And when he said that, I was like, okay, great. And I saw the studio, I was like, this is amazing. I was in Bethnal Green at the time, living with my partner. And we're like, right, we're moving to Kilburn. <laughs> because, like, this studio is all I ever wanted in London. <laughs> Moved there. And, yeah, I've had it for the last five years now. And still have it. And it's still beautiful. And here. you make music in Bert Yancey's old studio. Yeah, I've got his old carpet on the floor. And uh, it's beautiful. Oh, we couldn't have gone to a better... But, uh, you know, it could have been passed off. Yeah, I didn't know much about Pentangle before I moved into the studio because it just wasn't something I was listening to. But then after I checked, I was like, oh my God. Okay, we've we've established that you were in a kind of pretty cool gang in your teeth. So at this point, this is, we're in Chennai now, aren't we? We're in Chennai, yeah. Very densely populated? Very, even more densely populated. Yeah. So my dad moved because he got a job in Chennai. And uh, Chennai at the time was the fourth biggest city in, in the country. And it was in the south. I didn't speak the local language anymore. It was Tamil. Uh, I grew up speaking Gujarati and Hindi and English. Um, but all the kids at school, pretty much, I had to then try and speak to in English. So is English a sort of common sort of... In in the South it is yeah. far more than it is in the North. Growing up, no, not many people spoke English in school. Right, okay. Yeah. But now, yeah, it's, it's changing. Yeah, so growing up in Chennai then from the age of 12 to 18, sort of high school, very kind of formative years, was mm. then growing up with uh, 
in this. Do you know Jiddu Krishnamurti, the philosopher? Krishnamurti? No, no, sorry. He's this uh, yeah, amazing philosopher who set up, who, who, an educationalist who set up these schools in India and abroad. Here as well, actually, in Hampshire, there's one. And uh, so I went to one of his schools where uh, the focus is very much on kind of questioning and like um, you can ask your teachers anything you want. Very liberal, progressive schools where I could actually go for a walk if I wanted to. If I was getting bored, I could get up and leave class. And did your parents deliberately send? Yeah, you? yeah, they, they they loved Krishnamurti, so they we want to send him to a Krishnamurti. Your school. parents sound amazing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, they're great. They're really great, and they kind of this is it. So they gave me that freedom at an early age, and then it was like at first it's the same thing. Like you you don't know what to do with it. You go a bit crazy. Yeah. But then actually, it's not exciting anymore because it's not taboo. Yeah, yeah. So then it's like you kind of mellow out and mature far sooner than a lot of other people actually i think so like yeah. we were 15 and it wasn't a big deal to be like I don't know. how liberal could it be could you just go to the to the bottom of the yard and sort of roll a joint or something or no so like weed was still like a big no-no and i remember getting caught in school i was actually suspended through the last uh, high my high school like the first two months of my last year because of smoking weed. Where did they catch you? Tell me what happened. Well, no, I was ratted on by a couple of other school students. I wasn't even smoking in school. I was... What, like like the kind of straight students? Yeah, or just people who had some problem with us. <laughs> I don't even know why they... And these weren't even kids who were in school anymore. They were people who had passed out of school. Oh, man. So it was just like, man, why do you care? Anyway. So... And, what they, and what the school told your parents, did they? Yeah, they brought me in, told my parents, and they were shocked. So you finally found the line. You finally found, found the, line. the line and crossed it. I crossed it, but then, I, you know, so I knew where it was at least. And But then it kind of broke that spell of what school was as well. Like, you know, you grew up thinking this is a very liberal progressive place, but actually maybe it's not what you thought it was anyway. Like most people who probably are musicians, uh, don't have a great taste for authority. Did you know that your path would be kind of music? At this no, point? really, no. At this point, I was very much interested in environment, environmental science, sustainability, uh, playing music at the same time. I studied science in, in at my undergrad in Pune. So I did a bachelor's in environmental science. And that was what I wanted to do when I was 17. I wanted to be maybe an urban planner, focus on like renewable energy, uh, that kind of thing. But turns out this, the, the university I went to had such bad teachers that honestly like so bad that I just lost interest. I stopped going to classes and I just started playing in bands more. Did you tell your parents that you were basically... Well I did, I, they kind of understood, you know what, I think like undergrad education in India, especially like liberal arts, like sort of, uh, you know, science and arts degrees, mm. most of them are pretty terrible. Um, because like teachers aren't paid very well. So it wasn't news to them really? No, they were like, okay, just get through it, you know. So I did get through it, finished it, you know. And But by that point, I'd kind of lost that spark in anything else. But I'd kind of got that through music. I'd start playing drums, like the drum kit when I was about 17. I took a year out after university just to teach in a local music school, yeah. um, just trying to find out what I wanted to do. The end of that year, I was very sure I just I wanted to do music, and uh, that's when I decided to come to London and study drums. 
at the School of Oriental and African Studies. That happened a bit later. So there's a bit in the middle where I did two years at a place called Tech Music Schools, which is a Trinity Guildhall affiliated school okay. where I studied just drums and jazz performance and, you know, just sight reading and your kind of basics. I wanted to be in a big city. I didn't want to go to one of these campuses in the US, which was like sort of far removed. Mm. Um, I wanted to be able to go out in the evenings and check out music. And but you've done your research. Did you know that you would find that there was stuff happening in London that you could probably intersect? Not really. I kind of thought that London and New York were the two places I should probably be thinking about. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really follow that many bands from London per se at the time. But... Uh, I just moved. It was cheaper as well, honestly. London was cheaper than New York at the time. So you've been in London for for 10 years now? 10 years now, yeah. Has it changed? I've changed a lot. I mean, of course, there's a normal kind of like gentrification thing, mm. which is, yeah, sure, that's changed. But has London changed? I don't know. Like, it's very hard to remove my growth from, like, you know, I've spent my 20s in London and growing up in London. Three years after you moved here... The Olympics happened. Yeah. And, you know, that was the atmosphere was pretty good that year. Yeah. Maybe not so good this year. Yeah. I mean, it was actually, I remember before the Olympics, everyone was so pissed off that it was happening. It's like, oh, there's going to be all these people on the tube and it's going to be so many people in London. It's going to be like, it's going to be terrible. There's going to be people everywhere. And when it happened, I think everybody just really enjoyed it More, for the most part. I think it's because the UK, I mean, the UK did really well as well. Absolutely, and, the, and I mean, it was yeah, just a great. It was great. I remember it being a good time. Like it was great, you know. And now it feels like a kind of portal into a parallel future that never quite happened. Because of course we're sort of dealing with a whole bunch of issues, which you know, um, I guess have probably inspired the new album. Yeah, I mean, I'm just quickly thinking back of the Olympics now, but like people like Mo Farah, that was the first time we'd heard of Mo Farah, wasn't it? Kind of like round about then. Round about that was yeah. when he won three gold medals, or yeah. whatever, and yeah. that was like. Um, yeah, I think like that was when I think around then. So we're talking about 2012 where I started realizing that being um, a freelance musician in London was uh, a lonely affair. Lonely one, because any freelance life is lonely and you're not never prepared for that, I don't think. There's a lot of scope for feeling like a failure. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that was never drilled in or you never warned of that. And secondly, because there weren't that many people who looked or came from where I came from in the kind of music spaces that I was in at the time. Mm. You know, I was trying to get into more sort of playing jazz and improvised music more broadly. Were you at SOAS by this point? Yeah, I was at SOAS 2011 and 12. Soas was great because actually it was a little bubble of, you know, people from all over the world doing really, really interesting things and meeting some great people and like, I loved Soas. But after Soas, it was like you're, you're in the world now, you're in London and you, you, I wanted to just make a living making music. And so at that point, going to jams, like going to improv nights, um, trying to find like-minded musicians was where I started encountering the first kind of notions of what people thought what I did was not what I actually did. 
what did people think you did? Well, I think I realized at that point people cared far more about my tabla than they did about my drum kit, for example. You know, because it fitted a narrative that maybe yeah. oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So like, and often when people would write about me, they would write about my tabla playing. Like even on the first album, I'd get reviews which said tabla player Sarthik Verma. I was like, hang on, like there's literally maybe if you would actually split it up sonically. There's probably about 20% of tabla playing on that album and 80% of drumming, but yet you picked on that because it suits the narrative that you want to project. Right. Okay. Not because like, you know, I, I've always said I'm a I'm a percussionist or a drum kit and tabla player. I've never said I'm only a tabla player. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb jet earphones. I want to go back to the Olympics because everyone kind of loves Danny Ball. So, of course, you have a slightly different perception of Danny Ball because this whole kind of slumdog millionaire was a sort of problematic thing. I'm kind of embarrassed because I don't. It's several years since I saw that film. Mm. I don't think I really stopped to think about how it might seem. I just assumed because Danny Boyle seems like a nice yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I love a lot of Danny Boyle films. You know, stuff he's done. And I think the problem we had with this film, a lot of people had, was again like a representation thing. You know, there were hardly any Indian Indians in the film. Like Dev Patel, the main actor, was yeah. a Wembley born boy. Like, if he's gonna be a guy from the slums in India, there's like. There's a million actors who you could have possibly asked. About. And these things were noticed and picked up. It's on, just things like accents on. and stuff, you know, like where only Indians notice that this isn't accurate or like, you know, right. you focus so much on one aspect of the culture, which is the, the, the sheer poverty and violence of this place that after a while it has an effect on you that is just numbing. It becomes that, okay, this is the India that exists, you know, and the more... <laughs> popular that film and the more awards it won the more that fed into that idea that oh my god this is now what people think india is mm. that it's kind of this crazy rat race poverty ridden violent mad place and you know part of it all comes from you know it's not completely wrong but yeah. again if that's the only thing that you hear or see it's problematic yeah, and the more the more popular it becomes, the exactly. more those you know the, those fears become kind of multiplied. Almost, yeah, the com the kind of nuances and complexities yeah. get airbrushed out. Of course, of course. So four years on from sort of twenty twelve, and so, so suddenly you finally get to make your debut album mm. uh, day to day. There seemed to be a sort of an attempt to kind of make certain kind of connections between different kind of traditions of music which someone from my ignorant perspective might not necessarily have made. Was that just something that happened kind of quite organically? or I mean, it was something that I didn't uh, know much about either. The Siddhis, uh, the people we're talking about, are a community of people who migrated from the eastern coast of Africa over to India since the 8th century AD, around about the 8th century. Yeah. First as traders, merchants, you know, and then with all the colonial armies, so yeah. with the British, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, and have settled in India all across South, South and Southeast Asia. And they're known by different names. You know, in Pakistan, they're called Habshis. Uh, in India, they're called Siddhis. Yeah. Siddhi is just a blanket term now for anybody who's uh, from an African, East African family. 
so they're very dark skinned people they look very different from from what you'd think indians again quote and quote look like um their music is incredible because it's this combination of sufism mm. regional indian folk influences and east african influences so a lot of their instrumentation is it is is that they have these bows called the malunga which is a hand bow which looks a lot like the berimbau in brazil all right for me it was this revelation like cuz i didn't know much about them they're a very small population of people like between i think it's like 5 to 10000 in the whole of india wow. and you know minuscule nothing nothing really. like we were 1 and 1/2 billion people so yeah. but then i thought i hang on i never thought about the migration of people east from africa Everyone knows about Afro-Brazilian music, Afro-Cuban music, what jazz, blues, you know, everything. But not that much was written or talked about of the migration east and a lot of it did happen through the these colonial armies, you know. And the, the trade of people again not just through slavery but through indentured labor, which is a big thing. And so I was suddenly like very interested to kind of just learn more about these yeah people. Like and then I went and I found out that there was this one troupe performing troupe who lived in a um, village called Ratanpur which is in Gujarat yeah and I was like look I speak Gujarati they speak Gujarati and go and talk to them see what they you know and I basically shadowed a couple of these members from this from that performing troupe for a week recorded a bunch of music hmm. and then what I did what I really wanted to do was get my band from here to go to Ratanpur but I just couldn't afford to do it so what ended up happening is that we took these recordings and then we went into a studio in Pune and um kind of almost recorded our responses to these recordings of the Siddhis basically that was the first record they made there's a track on there called Indefinite Leave to Remain yeah which is um obviously the title kind of sticks out तो जिंदगी भर फिर भी नहीं पाए दिस इज अ थ्रेड दैट सीम्स टू काइंड ऑफ कनेक्ट अ लॉट ऑफ व्हाट यू डू या बिकॉज़ इट्स सो सच अ बिग पार्ट ऑफ माय लाइफ हियर लाइक वीसास एंड लाइक इमिग्रेशन इज जस्ट द रियलिटी ऑफ बीइंग अ फर्स्ट जनरेशन इमिग्रेंट हियर द टाइम आई रोड दैट सॉन्ग वाज व्हेन माय पार्टनर वाज अप्लाइंग फॉर हर इनडेफिनेटली लीव टू रिमेन एंड आई जस्ट लव्ड द टर्म एक्चुअली रिमूव्ड फ्रॉम इट्स कॉन्टेक्स्ट ऑफ माय इमिग्रेशन इनडेफिनेटली लीव टू रिमेन इज सच अ काइंड ऑफ weird concept to get your head around almost you know yeah yeah and i kind of thought it was actually quite poetic in a way yeah. you know almost spiritual kind of yeah. time yeah you could think of that but then you realize it's got this like bureaucratic kind of <laughs> angle to it uh which is quite funny i thought you know i think uh, yeah this new record is it sonically it's it's very far removed mm. sort of yeah. from what you've done before not all the way through but it's a very dramatic record mm. as well uh, certainly at mumbai i played that song to my children mm. i've got two daughters one oh, yeah. is nearly 16 and one oh, is 18 okay. they loved it but Ooh. they were kind of quite startled by it as well and um we all agreed that we you know we all could almost see the place in front of us right. that it was sort of depicted
can't even begin to imagine really how you even begin to build up a track like that. That track started from a drum groove, um, an idea that I had for two drummers uh, to be playing kind of interlocking polyrhythmic parts, and then followed that up by these two saxophone parts that also interlock at the very beginning of the track. So there's, there's this drum intro and the sax comes in, and that is basically the crux of the track. It all kind of built up from there. This idea that it's in a it's in an odd time signature, it's in 7-4, as opposed to most tracks that are in 4-4. Yeah. I was very curious to find a rapper who would be willing to rap in an odd time signature. And I finally found a Mawali. Mawali, who is this incredible, like super skilled, dexterous guy who studied Indian rhythms as well. So he was very well equipped to kind of approach this. Where is he from? He's from Mumbai. What? Yeah. I think what really makes the track interesting is because he's 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 having to break up his words and the flow is so uh, unique. It's almost like the song is kind of dissembling itself and reassembling itself yeah. kind of constantly all the way through. Yeah, the whole track was about building up layers and stripping them away. But the underlying kind of drums sort of like hold the track together. Got to ask you about Bolt. I think, I think just Bolt just blows me away every time I hear it. It's just such an exciting piece of music. Thanks, that's yeah, it's very kind. I think. Uh, Giles P- uh, Peterson yeah. was somebody he, he I sent him the record and he immediately said Paul that tune man is amazing I was like oh okay interesting and he said something quite funny he said it's quite it's like cinematic orchestra with roots maneuver on it but like a brown version of it yeah. and I was like hmm I mean I love both those things I'm not quite sure if it's exactly the same but I'll take it you know it's fine I'm running Running like thoughts, running from thoughts Rattling from the constant battling Broken pieces, floating tokens Token gestures, token jester Open sesame, Alibaba 40 thieves, 40 grievances Nothing to pledge allegiance with Trapped in a box, ballerina chopped off Place a Bangra man. Dance, monkey, dance to the music of the snake charmer. I am Karma. I am Karma Sutra. I am Mitha Honey 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 Mutteya Mundiya Tapachkira. I've listened to it a lot and I was listening to it on the way here once again and uh, I love songs where there's you know you get that tension between constant flux but there's an unchanging element kind of all the way through them mm-hmm. and that's why i think i love a lot of kind of modal music as well right you get that yeah going on yeah absolutely. there's this bass line going all the way through bottom, yeah and the hand claps and the which kind of like, yeah. just sort of like completely kind of has you here you know right it doesn't let go of you yeah it's and constant the, it's this i mean the song was inspired by a lot of kawali music you know, right, a big, okay, yeah, I've been yeah. listening to a lot of Kawali last year and 
I love that kind of idea of hypnotic kind of those patterns that just constantly repeat and like that idea of hand claps and certain vamps that just constantly stay you know yeah that's interesting because that's kind of I you know I I, I always I'm I'm always going to be quite quite ignorant you know because of the music I've grown up listening to but there were certain kind of emotional resonances I got from um not just Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, but also Rizwan Mirzam Kabbalah. Yeah, yeah. Who had just done a story. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you I see them at the Barbican? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was incredible, wasn't it? Great. And again, I've been lucky enough to see that I actually saw them in rehearsing once at Real World Studios okay. years ago. And oh, wow. just, I felt like it kind of intruded. Just had to be very quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About that. Yeah, he's amazing. The Sabri brothers are another amazing. Uh, there's so many great, like, Kawali troops from Pakistan, especially. Um, yeah, it's just brilliant. I love it. Uh, the more I listen to Kawali, the more I, the more I love it. Yeah. Now that was. This is kind of like a modern kind of British Asian Kawali take on a lot of, you know, inspired by Kawali music, really. You know. I met Zia Ahmed who lives in uh, Cricklewood, of all places, in my backyard, basically. Did you know when you tried to contact Zia Ahmed that he was based so near to you? Well, I had an inkling because one of the lyrics that I heard him speak uh, online was, he said, uh, so where are you really from? And he says, type NW2, what is your sat-nav show? And so I was like, NW2, that's, that's, that's my neighbourhood. <laughs> Zia is just such a hilarious character. Like his lyrics, even Mango, which is also one of my favorites, like yes, so yes. funny. Like, yes. and it's just sarcastic, but cuts to the kind of heart of what it is to be kind of British Asian, you know, in this day and age. And uh, yeah, I just think he makes the track so much more interesting. Mango. Mango writes something, and White Mango. I don't know. Maybe it needs a symbol to represent the exotic. Something like a mango. Mango into bar. And bar mango. Wide along mango. Snap pole. Of course, having been in the in the UK for ten years now, it's I guess it's inevitable that this quite organic bastardization occurs, you know. And you've just touched on it sort of now. I guess it's the history the history of pop, of, of rock and pop music is this kind of constituting and throwing British invasion, you know, yeah, yeah. in the sixties and so forth. And also, we're seeing it happen now with uh, sort of Nigerian Afrobeats music. So we're kind of getting. Yeah, and, and grime, mm. and you know, a lot of the kind of really fantastic grime music that's coming out now yeah. has got that lovely sort of super laid back, soulful Nigerian mm. vibe. Mm, going, yeah, going and the sound system culture and like all that stuff is so influenced. You know, grime <laughs> comes from all those things. I was wondering why this like recent way, like the last four or five years of grime, I'm hearing a lot of dance hall in mm. it, and I'm wondering if maybe the parents of a lot of these artists yeah. maybe were listening to dance hall in the 80s and stuff, and it's kind of filtering down now. 
So on the new album, a track by, is it uh, Cooley? Is that, yep. uh, okay. Again, you know, I'm, well, there's almost sort of a kind of slightly dubby kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Thing. And the, the one of the rappers on it, Delhi Sultanate, is uh, somebody who grew up in Jamaica. Right, and, okay. Um, so he has this kind of patois. He see, that's how he speaks, like just Jamaican patois kind of accent. All right, then. East Indies to the West Indies. very interesting for me is like cuz at first i was like hang on do i want this like is this gonna throw people is this like not cuz i'm this is a south asian record and suddenly there's this like guy who's rapping in a but actually that is the whole point of the record that you know all these things are you can still be south asian and that doesn't just cuz it doesn't subscribe to your notion of what south asian yeah. looks or sounds like this guy is talking about stuff like he's talking about the trade of indentured labor and of cannabis from india to jamaica you know with the colonial army which is like amazing and it's all it's your record anyway you can be as sort of i can do what i want yeah 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 basically yeah 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 in 1866 Again, there are certain ambiguities in calling an album more arriving, mm. uh, almost an inflammatory title mm. in a way. Yeah. Um, mm. Tell me a little bit why why you came to that. Well, so the last words on the album of the of the song "Pravasis" by Deepak Unnikrishnan, he says, "Temporary people, ephemeral people, gone people, deported people, more arriving." And it comes from that idea of um, the rhetoric behind the term. You know, I think like when you look at the term again, much like indefinite leave to remain, like the term itself is fairly neutral, more arriving. It's the way we look at it now, given the kind of state that mainstream politics and everywhere is, is that we think of it as quite a negative. The rhetoric behind it is fairly negative now. Yeah. We think of, you know... scores of people landing on our shores and taking our jobs and you know uh, you know just taking taking our culture away depleting our country and our society for what it's worth pravasi 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 expat worker guest worker guest worker worker foreigner worker non-resident worker non-citizen workers workers it's kind of a tongue in cheek title in the sense that you know more arriving there is more of us coming and you kind of have to deal with it it's going to be it's going to be fine maybe you know it doesn't have to be a negative title yeah no uh, yes. god you know i think we're all just kind of any any reasonably minded person in in london in 2019 and we're having this conversation on the day that you know boris johnson announced right. his leadership campaign yeah we're all just sitting here hoping for the best really and yeah. yet you know despite evidence to the contrary well this <laughs> is it and i think like when people say even like oh do, do you still need to make a record like this hasn't the conversation moved on since like where and what south asian music is and then we're just about to elect a guy who says something about ladies in hijabs didn't he 
Yeah, and the letterboxes thing, which yeah. kind of came out and he kind of brushed it aside. Oh, like, that's where we're at right now. So I think like also the the title and um, the artwork that's that kind of accompanies the title is um, a throwback to a lot of the protests that happened in the 70s with the Grunwick strikes and, yeah. you know, against the EDL, which was had South Asians collectivizing for the first time in the UK. Right. And I feel like in a way, we need to go back to this idea of collectivism. Almost since 9-11 happened, suddenly British Asians became, oh, you're British Muslim, oh, you're British Hindu, you're British Sikh, you're British Pakistani, British Indian. And so I think, you know, a lot of the Islamophobia has kind of got to do with that idea of like breaking that collective identity of South Asians in the UK. And so I think for me, it's about this idea of showing strength in numbers, the solidarity whilst not forgetting that there are a lot of problems within the South Asian community that need to be addressed first as well. Radical Islamism is as much a problem in India, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. or uh, sort of Islam. Islamophobia is a huge problem. I mean, like, basically, the rhetoric that now surrounds Muslims in India is that they need to be thrown back to Pakistan, they need to go and leave our country. This is a Hindu nation, yeah, you know, yeah. that's the rhetoric. Um, so, yeah. I think what I find exciting about the album, you know, and I think, you know, you don't, you're not obliged to reflect the times that you're making music in. Loads of music I love, she isn't trying to do that. But there is something quite thrilling, you know, I kind of almost sort of reminded of, um, you know, like Attica Blues by Archie mm. Shep or something. Mm. You hear that record and everything that's kind of a bit turbulent about what was happening in America at that point in yeah. time is kind of funneled through that record. And I guess I'm getting a lot of. Yeah, similar feeling. Oh, that's great. That's a huge compliment. Listen. But like, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's definitely a record that I could not have made anywhere else but London in 2000. Okay, well, I've detained you here for long enough. Oh, no, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much, Sarathi Kowar. Um, so the record's out in July. Yeah, 26th of July on Leaf label more arriving uh thank you for keeping us company for the last hour or so you've been listening to the needle mythology podcast with myself pete perfides created with the invaluable assistance and support of flare audio it was beautifully produced as all these podcasts are by laura Druce. and uh, i hope to see you next time take care bye bye Thank you.